Welcome to Historical Jesus. I'm Mark Vinette. For 2,000 years, we've been told that Christianity began around 33 AD, when the disciples of the rural preacher Jesus of Nazareth came to believe he had risen from the dead. But is that tale a myth? The Jesus myth theory includes the view that the story of Jesus is largely mythological and has little basis in historical fact. It is a fringe theory supported by a small group of dedicated, active, and vocal scholars and mythicists who argue that in the Gospels, a fictitious historical narrative was imposed on the mythical cosmic savior figure created by Paul. Myth proponents claim that there is significance in the lack of surviving historic records about Jesus of Nazareth from any non-Jewish author until the 2nd century, adding that Jesus left no writings or other archaeological evidence. This understanding deviates from the mainstream historical view, and most historians reject the theory that Jesus never existed. Mainstream biblical scholars point out that much of the writings of antiquity have been lost, and that there was little written about any Jew or Christian in this period, and that there is no known archaeological or textual evidence for the existence of most people in the ancient world, even famous people. Born in the Second Century is a podcast hosted by Chris Palmero, a secular, self-proclaimed counter-evangelist and former Catholic. Through a close reading of the New Testament and books left out of the Bible, he argues that Christianity began almost 100 years after the imagined death of Christ. Let's listen to his provocative, alternative view of the historical Jesus. If you were to go to the store this week and pick up literally any book off the shelf that discusses the early history of the church, you'd be told that around 180 A.D., the Christian church was a thriving organization with organized communities in every major city. It had specific initiation rites. It had a clearly defined theology. It had bylaws and procedures in place right down to the seating arrangements in the individual churches. Whenever pagan writers noticed Christianity in this early period, it is almost always in the context of wandering magicians, wandering exorcists who will heal you with the magic word, a wave of the hand, invoking the name of Jesus, and even the New Testament reflects this. Christianity in the mid-second century looks like a common salvation cult dealing heavily in magic, which is now in the process of expanding. But above all, the religion appears to still be in its earliest days. If Christianity had already been around for a century and a half, there wouldn't have been any need for this kind of activity. We have to take it upon ourselves to criticize the New Testament. Jesus and the apostles are mythical figures, and the true beginning of Christianity is to be found not in the early first century, but in the second quarter of the second century, that is between 125 AD and 150 AD. Early Christianity as we know it was born in the second century, nearly a hundred years later than is commonly claimed. We're going to demonstrate it through a close reading of the New Testament and of the paracanonical writings from both Christianity and Judaism and of the contemporary Greco-Roman testimonies. Until now, when we've thought about the origins of Christianity, we've assumed certain things, and we may not even be aware that we're assuming them at this point. We've assumed that Jesus was a historical teacher of the early first century who was crucified and died under Pontius Pilate. We've assumed that he appeared to his closest disciples in a vision after his death. We've assumed that his disciples spread the message of his cross and resurrection throughout the empire. 
and we've assumed that all of this happened by the end of the first century. These assumptions come from nearly 2,000 years of habit, and we have to ditch them entirely if we want to know how Christianity truly began, because there's an unsettling feeling that we start to get when we actually read the early Christian documents from beginning to end. It's a feeling that the origin story of the religion that we've always been told that we think we know, frankly, doesn't make any sense. And to address that feeling, to find the truth, we have to jettison our assumptions and really read these texts as it were for the first time. And when we finally listen to what they have to say, we can begin to hear the true story that these earliest Christian books are trying to tell us, that this new religion, this breakaway sect from Judaism, was still in its infancy as late as 150 AD. There has to be an alternative way of explaining how Christianity began, one that takes all the evidence into account, one that addresses the many contradictions and problems that arise when we try to read these books in the conventional way, and above all, one that explains why Christians or Christianity are not even a blip on the radar of the general consciousness of the Roman public until over a century later than we should expect. And scholars from the past have raised these questions, but their achievements are ignored by mainstream Christians in our time. Their efforts represent an abandoned road that we have to take it upon ourselves to follow. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Anyone who listens can learn about how everything that we're told about Christian origins comes from a fictional narrative that was developed by the early church to explain the circumstances of its own founding. Christianity, as we know it, as it emerged from the second century, was just one strain of a Jewish heresy that survived. And the main reason for its survival was that it was able to get everyone to believe that all of its rival strains either never existed or were unfortunate deviations that the church management dealt with fairly handily, almost like they were dealing with a routine HR issue. I want to provide some background for the true beginnings of Christianity and why the traditional story of those beginnings has so many problems. We should always be asking why, if the original disciples of Jesus originated Christianity, and if the succeeding generations continued their work like they were simply passing on a baton in a relay race, then why do our texts from the middle of the second century reveal a belief system that's still largely unknown to the general public? And why do the Christian documents from this period show such a lack of organization, such a lack of defined belief, and so much rivalry between large sectarian groups? each of which claim to have been around since the beginning. Always remember that the main underlying problem with the modern study of Christian origins is the assumption that Jesus was a historical figure and that his immediate disciples founded Christianity. It's the one error that's the source of all others. 
Something strange began to happen in the years after Alexander the Great and his successors had conquered the known world and threw its center of gravity towards the Mediterranean, towards the West. Prior to this, and going back into the very ancient period of humanity, religion had been centered around cultic sites, performing service to the gods, and these were national gods. And there was a temple honoring a national god, that of Yahweh, the ancient Canaanite storm deity, now become the sole official deity of the Jewish religion that had been rather eclectic until then, if we read between the lines of the Old Testament. And this temple and this belief system had been established by the new hierocratic leaders of the Jewish people who were more or less lieutenants of the Persian Empire. And they were charged with managing what was essentially a border march of the Persian state. And the way they did this was by structuring their society along religious and cultic lines. And this was in the 5th century BC. But Alexander's conquest basically unified the world as all of these various peoples perceived it. Ancient people did not think in terms of maps, like a top-down view that showed where they live and here's where all the other tribes lived. They rather tended to think of the world around them as lists of peoples. They had a vague knowledge of where each nation lived in relation to the others. And beyond that, there was maybe a vague notion of India and China off in space somewhere. So to them, the Greek and Roman empires had essentially unified the world. This had a major impact on the traditional views of local gods as national protectors, and it had a major impact on religion. The role of religion in daily life itself had to be completely reimagined in this time when people began to see themselves less as members of city-states than as members of a civilized world. Quite a new concept. Now, in the modern world, we would tend to see such a process as clean and organized. You used to have these thousands of local cults. Now these are all beginning to transition into more universal religions that speak to daily experience and the inner life of the individual. But what's very striking is that for ancient people, this process was incredibly stressful. It was a difficult birth. And we see a cross-pollination of religious ideas that hadn't been possible in earlier eras, and not everyone was quite sure how to deal with it. But the main area of interest to us is in the contact between Judaism and Greek philosophical ideas. In a late section of the book of Proverbs, we read the following. And the writer is talking about the personification of wisdom. From eternity I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no ocean depths, I was born. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was born. When he established the heavens, I was there. And with this, we are beginning to see an infiltration of Greek thought into Judaism, a development of ideas from Plato and his successors, whose idea was that God was too transcendent and too perfect to interact directly with the world. And we begin to see in Judaism the idea that matter itself is corrupt and that the true center of our being is a pure, incorruptible spirit that must rise above the world of matter. The book called The Wisdom of Solomon says about this, the corruptible body presses down the soul, and the earthly tabernacle weighs down the mind. And there's a new belief that the truly righteous, those pure in spirit, will be entitled to a resurrection. And note that this book was written over a hundred years before the supposed death of Jesus. The wisdom of Solomon says, The souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there no torment will touch them. Even though they are punished in the sight of men, their hope is full of immortality. 
having been a little chastised, they shall be greatly rewarded, because God proved them and found them worthy of himself. What's changing here is Judaism in the first century BC as it comes into contact with Greek philosophy in this time when the old ideas of the national cults of the gods are dying out and being replaced with religious ideas about the life of the inner mind during the first and second centuries BC. I'm Mark Vinette. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text history that's H I S T O R Y using the code 30605.